I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the sun began to tuck away for winter, so did many Portlanders who'd spent the summer out protesting. As the days grew shorter, a shrunken but dedicated group of activists continued to pound the streets in their call for justice. The early days of the protests had been fueled, in part, by the massive lockdown and the layoffs that came with it. As the pandemic wore on, economic collapse contributed to street activism in new ways. Portland has been in a housing state of emergency since 2015, as it was declared by former Mayor Charlie Hales, and extended by his successors in the city council again in 2019 for two more years. For a long time, thousands of Portlanders had lived one paycheck away from homelessness, and in 2020, thousands more found themselves on the edge of a cliff. To stave off disaster, a pandemic eviction moratorium was adopted by local lawmakers. It included no forgiveness or grace period for missed rent. This meant that, while you wouldn't get kicked out of your home for missing rent, all that unpaid rent still stacked up. At the time of recording, 89,000 households in Oregon are subject to eviction when the state's moratorium expires, owing more than $378 million in collective back rent. Now, evicting all of those people would cost the state $3 billion, eight times more than the total back rent owed. Near the end of 2020, the whole situation wound up coming to a head in the battle over a single property, the Red House on North Mississippi Avenue. Coming up next is Elaine. Portland has spent the last decade basking in its image as a liberal playground of bird stickers and locavore foodies. However, this hides the concerted destruction by developers and city planners of Portland's black community in the Albina district during that same time. The area was redlined for blacks, with local government working in concert with real estate agents and banks to guarantee black people virtually had no options to live outside the neighborhood. Following the Vanport floods of 1948, 
local lawmakers and real estate interests coordinated to ensure that thousands of Black individuals and families suddenly without a home could look nowhere else but a small section of inner North and Northeast Portland if they were to live within city limits. The mostly European immigrant-populated neighborhood flipped almost overnight, with many other residents quickly fleeing the area to avoid living near Black people. Shortly after the flood, close to 70% of the state's Black population lived in the Albina district. Consequently, the neighborhood has been the nucleus to much of the city's Black community for generations. The Portland Police Bureau conducted years of targeted harassment aimed at the Albina community. Years of blight, systemic disinvestment, and policing have led to a mass exodus of Blacks from the Central Albina Corps. Many left to the fringes of the city in search of lower rents as north-northeast Portland suddenly became prime real estate. Quickly, the place so many called home was eroding before their eyes. Here are the snack mamas on the gentrification of Albina and some history of north-northeast Portland. Yeah. It's hard to see how North Portland has turned, like you said. It's it's really hard to watch the change. Sometimes I get really angry. My mom has (laughs) lived here, and it's hard. It really Um, is fucking hard. it's, It's hard to watch. It's upsetting, but... Everything looks all nice and fancy, but nobody knows how it got that way. <laughs> Emmanuel Hospital. Give me a fucking break. You know what I mean? Like, it, yeah, it's nice to have a hospital there. It really is. I mean, but you could have cleared the fucking freeway and stuck it right there. I mean, get Moda Center out of there and put a hospital right there. Like, I don't even remember what was there before Moda Center was, but I'm sure <laughs> probably well, a shitload of homes, it, you know? It used to be you know, uh, the yeah. Rose Quarter. They changed There's that without telling There's a whole industrial area down there, like... <laughs> Figure it out, you know what I mean? But you're tearing families out mm-hmm. of homes who lived there for... That was like my my son's grandmother. She lived on 33rd and Prescott right there on the corner. She's like in her late 90s. Yeah. They came and pretty much stole that house from up underneath her. And yeah, and they're always the, the blocks with all in, the, you know... Moved into like a, a hotel, like apartment thing and died shortly after that. And it's like, it's, it's upsetting when I drive by and see it. And I'm like, God damn, I don't drive my car through that house. You know, but it's, it's upsetting the way they do things and the way they, you know, rehome people and the, you know... The wounds run deep. In the last decade, homeownership for black Portlanders has fallen, not risen. Perhaps more striking is their representation in the houseless population. About 7.2% of Multnomah County's population is black. But according to their most recent point-in-time count, which was released in pre-COVID times, it showed that black Portlanders accounted for more than 16% of the houseless in the area. A policy adopted by the city of Portland designed to give residents with historic ties to inner north and northeast helps illustrate how deep the need is. The policy gives first dibs at select new apartments being developed by the Housing Bureau, assists existing homeowners in the area with maintenance, and fosters home ownership opportunities. When applications for the first round of units opened up in 2015, thousands applied to live in the handful of units. More complexes have been built since, and dozens more serve for the home repair and ownership opportunities. But every time applications open, the systems are flooded with people just hoping to make the wait list. However, for people that qualify, some feel like the program does not go far enough to remediate the damage that was done to the community. The Snack Mamas continue why even that program has problems since it limits the ownership rights of the family that it helps to return. Yeah, I, I entered into this program for um, the Multnomah County did um, for people who lived in North Portland and were kind of pushed out. Mm-hmm. So I entered that program. I'm just like, this is fucking complete bullshit. You're asking people who have been kicked out of their homes because you guys have great fucking credit to get into this program and to um, be able to buy a home on their own shit. But yet you own the land. They can own the home like Fuck, go fuck yourselves. I don't, yeah, that's what it is. They own the fucking. Of that program, they own the like land. Bring people back. In, yeah, you like can't. The, you the can't do shit. They, into the neighborhood. They own that land, 
you own the home. Mind you, when you they move get out, hair up their ass. they get a piece of that it's money fun. when you sell your home because they helped you get into there. Wow. And, you know, yeah. So you can't do any work on the land or, or tear the house down and build and you can't do whatever the fuck you want to do. That's their fucking land, you know, and you're just owning the home on it. So it's not actually helping no. people get back not yeah, no. to the neighborhood. No, in any no, 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 it absolutely isn't. And That's no, how they like to make it look. Land yeah, it's and, land so, land and so, like, you have choices between um, all these little houses or, or, or little buildings or townhomes or whatever. Like, there was nothing that was over, like, three, two bedrooms, I think, two or three bedrooms on any of those lists because I've got a family of five, you know, and I'm just like, fuck. Like, none of this shit's here for me. Like, what's what's the deal? Can I build mm-hmm. on it? No, you can't build anything else on it. What the fuck? You know, finding out that that's their property. You just own the building for that point being, you know? And, and um, yeah, I'm just like, but all these properties are certain properties, you know? Because it's just what they own that you get to live on. <laughs> yeah, <Very frustrating. laughs> basically. And I'm just like, this is fucking bullshit, dude. You know, I never made it to my second appointment. I was like, fuck out of here. Local activist Regina Rage also spoke on the ongoing gentrification in Portland, in specific relation to a certain red-painted house on Mississippi Avenue that was owned by the same Black family for more than 50 years. That house would become one of the main focal points in Portland protests. Yeah, um, Mississippi Street is located in a neighborhood in Portland that was previously an all-Black neighborhood and is at the very moment being gentrified and developed and um, Black families are being forced out into East Portland and Southeast Portland because of this gentrification. And so, like, for me specifically, um, I, like, remember the lot that we're all occupying and it's been empty my entire life. And now because of this protest, they want to develop it into something else. They're going to donate it and then they're going to put high rise on top of it, condos, you know? Um, The neighborhood looks vastly different from when I was growing up. I don't recognize it. Sometimes I'm driving and I just really don't recognize it. And, um, that's what makes it important to this community is this is one of the last black families in this neighborhood and they are doing everything they can to remain this neighborhood. And previously they were um, displaced from Vanport as well. Another neighborhood in Portland that was destroyed, um, and all of it is tied to white supremacy and what we're fighting against. We crooked. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. 
Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's Donovan Smith. The Red House on Mississippi has belonged to the Kinney family for over 65 years. William and Pauline Kinney sold their house to their son, William Jr., and his wife in 1995. Their financial dominoes began when the owner's son got into a car accident on a suspended license as a teen in 2002. The driver of the car died, the passenger was injured, and William III was ultimately convicted of a felony. To cover legal fees, the Kenny family took out a balloon loan against the house. The son, William X. Nietzsche, was sentenced to five years, first in juvenile detention before being transitioned to the state prison at 18. Over time, due to interests and expenses piling up, as well as inadequate legal representation, the Kinney family home, now one of the last black-owned homes on North Mississippi, ended up in foreclosure. Because the foreclosure process started prior to the pandemic, in September, a judge ruled that the eviction of the Kinneys could proceed despite the eviction moratorium. That month, the Multnomah County Sheriff stormed into the Reddit house with rifles and evicted four members of the family. After the initial eviction, some Portlanders began gathering around the Red House to support the Kinneys. They decried the forced eviction, especially amidst economic crisis and a pandemic. Some even camped outside the property. And then on December 5th, the Portland Police Bureau and county sheriffs arrived yet again to clear out residents, campers, and render the home on Mississippi Avenue uninhabited. 
Elisa Azar, an independent Portland journalist, was on the ground when the tide turned against the police eviction team. Red House, wow, where to begin? <laughs> um, you know, Red House is is like just such a wild story in so many ways. Um, that morning, oh my God, it was like not even 9.30 in the morning. And <laughs> I was like, holy shit. Like everyone just went like full Paris on PPP. <laughs> it was not even 10 o'clock in the morning. I was like, what am I witnessing right now? This is wild. But I think that's fucking huge because, you know, for almost 200 days, we've seen people, we've, you know, we've seen activists and protesters play nothing but defense and even the defense is very like it's usually very childish and comical you know which is what's so fucking powerful you know you, they throw bouncy balls and water balloons filled with glitter at the cops and the cops's reaction is just like you know is it's absurd um so seeing that kind and even even the morning of red house that was still defense but it was a different kind of defense it was a hands-on, aggressive, don't fuck with us kind of defense. And, the you know, it's the first time I've seen anything like that. Um, and the fact that it was done uh, for that reason, I think also just goes to show, like, what the community is about. Um, seeing people care that much was incredible. Um there were people literally fighting the cops. And I think this is one of the few, like literally fighting the cops um, to defend a family that was, you know, they were trying to force out of their home. And um, I think, you know, in general, Red House, but like even like leading up to Red House, there's been, um, I think there's been a lot more like attention and a lot more like care and focus on houselessness. Activist Regina Rage also witnessed the December raid. I was there at five. They called me at four forty-five, and I got there right after. In the morning. Yes, in the morning. Um, initially, it was just me there, um, and then I think by the time daylight hit. And Koya was there. There was maybe like 50 people all like crunched in like this one tiny side yard that the only place we were allowed to be at. And um, at that point, I noticed that white people were allowed to stand in that alleyway. And I wasn't. Every time I stepped in the alleyway, they the police charged at me and threatened to arrest me. And um, I started yelling about how, like they were blatantly allowing these white people to walk back and forth in this alleyway, but I wasn't. And other people started yelling. And then soon we were all just standing in the street and the police were rushing us. Um, At one point they maced us all and um, forced us all back onto the side yard. And then we rushed again. A couple of people got arrested. And they, at one point, 
decided to pull back and the sheriffs left first. And as they started to lead, I started running down the hill towards the cop cars and um, everybody else followed and it escalated from there. Under a hail of water bottles, rocks, paint balloons, and other random projectiles, police retreated from the area. The cops initially arrived around 5 a.m. and were completely gone by 10.30. In the five hours they were present, at least seven people were arrested. In the hasty retreat, several police cars were damaged, some by projectiles, and one due to an officer crashing his own cruiser into another car. Regina describes what happened next. Um, the police finally left, um, were chased off whatever um and we just took down the fence and started building them immediately um yeah and the police had destroyed all of what we had built at red house it was like a weatherproof um living space for those individuals who were staying there as well as like an event space it was like very 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 nice and um, they destroyed it. And um, so we took basically all of the broken materials that they created for us and used those to build barricades. And um, when the barricades were up, we, um, we organized watch and um, began calling for supplies to be brought in. Like what happened, I do want to add, what happened with that barricade was just like organic, an organic response to being attacked by an enemy who literally does not give a fuck about your life. Like Regina and I are both single mothers. You know what I'm saying? Like they're out there gassing single moms. Elisa recounts the mood after the cops were pushed out of the area. Everyone was just kind of like on edge. Like it was a huge celebration, but everybody was like, they're coming back and with force. They just got their asses handed to them. There's absolutely no way they're just gonna, you know, they're just gonna leave. So Everyone, everyone was ready and everyone was waiting. And within minutes, you know, barricades started to go up. Um, but they weren't even then, like they weren't just like barricades. Um, were you at uh, PCAS or any of the, like the really, really barricaded nights? And, you know, those nights were fucking sick. But a lot of the barricades, like, like they were really cool and they were, they served their purpose. But Red House... I'm talking like reinforced <laughs> barricades and blockades. Like there were power tools. There was concrete being laid out, like, you know, anything you could think of. Um, and I think, uh, you know, a lot of that comes from practice and, um, you know, you learn what you do wrong by, you know, testing things out. But I think the biggest change was like, it, it was the passion. Hours after the barricades went up, narrowly reelected Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler made a series of tweets decrying the eviction blockade and mischaracterizing the eviction defense as a so-called autonomous zone. He said, quote, I'm authorizing the Portland police to use all lawful means to end the illegal occupation on North Mississippi Avenue and to hold those violating our community laws accountable. There will be no autonomous zone in Portland, end quote. Nervous anticipation loomed over everyone the first night inside the barricades. Behind the multiple layers of reinforced barricades and impromptu call troops, people anxiously waited to see if the police would show up that first night. But slowly morning came and the coast was clear. Over the next few days, the infrastructure grew. 
Barricades grew more sophisticated. The janky call troughs made of screws and garden hoses were replaced with welded rebar. The food donation area turned into a whole kitchen and more and more tents were put up in the streets around the Red House. But as time went on and police didn't show, familiar problems arose regarding people acting as security. Here's Regina. And um, I think that white people in this movement often come into it with a white savior complex and take up a lot of space and actually alienate the black people that this movement is about. And that's what happened during the barricade. There were a ton of white cisgendered people running around um, behaving crazily, um, acting like cops, to be honest. Multiple people, some of them children, were physically assaulted, put in chokeholds, shot at with paintballs, and kicked out of the Red House eviction defense area for not having permission to use paint by large men acting as self-appointed security team. Problems with the protest security occurred in Portland before, the most notable being the truck driver assault, but smaller incidents took place throughout the summer and fall. Armed men running around in tactical gear trying to intimidate people into obedience and in some cases using physical force has the same fundamental issue people critique police for. The same problem of armed security essentially acting as cop is part of what got a black teenager in Seattle's Capitol Hill Occupy protester chop killed. One phrase spray painted near the Red House was, kill the cop in your head, reflecting the protesters' dissatisfaction with this dynamic. When a group of people are attacking children over graffiti, that's basically a, a mini police force, unaccountable armed men in tactical gear. Part of police abolition is confronting policing dynamics found throughout your life, even at anti-police protests. The kill the cop in your head graffiti at Red House was soon buffed and covered over by his fellow activists within the blockade. For most within the barricades, there wasn't much conflict to speak of. The time at the eviction blockade was mostly spent sitting around a campfire and watching over the fortified fences for incoming police. For the neighbors who lived near the Red House, the biggest change was a slight inconvenience to parking. Many locals were very sympathetic to the cause, putting up signs in support of the Kennys and the Red House. And some even showed support in other ways. People were actually very supportive. Um, neighbors were bringing us food and supplies. They were coming to hang out with us. They were bringing us coffee. Um, there were very few individuals in the neighborhood who actually felt threatened by any of us. But unfortunately, those are the people who got to the media first. But I think that if we um, were able to talk to everyone who was involved, I think that they would say that they were proud of what we did. Yeah, like the ones who, the few and far between ones who were like against it were the, were just very loud, white, privileged people with time on their hands, you know, which oftentimes, as we know, can have the ear of the, the powers that be. Once the barricades went up and the 24-7 lockdown beeped up, media, both locally and nationally, couldn't resist the Red House story. What had been one family's years-long battle in the courts was now suddenly catching the headlines of CNN and TMZ and, yep, even Fox. A local activist named Koya Crespin, who had been working with Regina to organize with the Kennys, launched a GoFundMe. It set out to raise a quarter million dollars for the Kennys as a bargaining chip to get the developer Roman Ozaruga to the table. When national media began constantly reporting on the house, donations shot up coming from all corners of the country as sympathetic viewers and readers aimed to stop the Kennys from losing their home. 
A slight twist came when Oregon Public Broadcasting or OPB released an article revealing that the Kenny family, in fact, had a place to stay after the raid. In fact, it was another family member who, yep, owned their own home. The headline read, family at the center of the Red House protests owned second Portland home, detailing the fact that the home had been kept in the family for generations. Disperse similar headlines locally and nationally. They're trying to say the Kinney family lied about like not having anywhere to go. And when I get kicked out, I have gotten kicked out of places that I've been staying at and have had nowhere but my grandmother's house to go. And that's exactly what happened to the Kinney family. The police removed them from their home at gunpoint and they had nowhere else but their grandma's house to go. So they went to stay there. And the media tried to say that they had a second house. And as if an entire family with multiple generations all has to live in the same house. That is some racist shit super racist to say that a black family has to all live in the same fucking house. OPB ran an apology article shortly thereafter apologizing for their mischaracterization of the Kenny's plight. Some support had dwindled, but through it all, support for the Red House grew and so did the fundraiser. The GoFundMe raised well over the quarter million dollars needed to secure the house. The developer was ready to approach the bargaining table. With the assistance of the city, Roman and the Kinneys began discussions about transferring ownership back into the hands of the family. This was a mark of celebration for some who had been occupying the house since September. As conversations with Roman trucked on, the city, after days of threatening police force against the house, promised the bureau would back off if barricades came down. The Kinneys obliged to the dismay of some activists, many white, who wanted to flex the strength of the people. But for Regina, she says the occupation was never about the walls. There were a lot of people who we didn't even know who had never been to the Red House, who had opinions on what we should have done and like who we are now um, because we didn't keep those barricades up. Um, but it was never about the barricades. It, it was, it is and will always be about what is best for the Kinney family and what they want. And um, we did lose like, Support slowly and slowly after the barricades um, came down, people stopped coming. And um, there are individuals living at the um, Red House right now who still need support from this community and are not getting it because the cops aren't an imminent threat anymore. At the moment, it does seem the eviction blockade was successful in applying enough pressure to open up options for the Kennys to keep their home. Holding down a few blocks of a neighborhood while raising hundreds of thousands of dollars may not be a perfectly replicable strategy, but it does show the type of things that can happen when community comes together to stand up against a perceived injustice. Here's Koi on the potential impact of the Red House story in the future. And I hope it happens all around the country. And I hope people are inspired by it and that they go seeking out evictions to do the shit with and to lift up this work. Um, this isn't like the first ever time a neighborhood has risen up to defend an eviction. This would happen even as far back as the 30s. Communities would come together to fight um, the police when they came to drag people out of their homes. Right. I think like we've all seen, have, I don't know, we've probably all seen that pic of like 
it's from like the 30s like rage referenced where it's like neighborhood men and they're all white like on top of a sheriff stopping them from evicting a widow you know like a handful of people continue to occupy the Red House. Negotiations have continued since December, but all parties have been pretty tight-lipped about the status of the talks up until now. Red House has not marked the end of protests in Portland. More than anything, it's galvanized a large amount of mutual aid directed around evictions and houselessness. During the same period as Red House activists keeping multi-week watch over a houseless encampment at a local park that was under threat of sweep by the city. As winter has set in, the mayor has worked to roll back eviction protections as well as protections against camp suites. Facing freezing temperatures and a mounting pandemic, activists have mobilized to get gear and supplies as well as helping with defense work to prevent more evictions and displacement. Activists argue that sweeps and evictions are unconscionable during a pandemic and that money funding the evictions could be used to make sure that people are housed. Demetria Hester speaks about the continuing mutual aid. No, I am. I, it hasn't surprised me because um, our community know it's a need. They know it's a need, so they're starting all these groups so that that we can help the need in our community. I mean, people are still getting evicted. They're still not being able to pay their bills. They're still not getting food uh, from our government. So we have to depend on each other to give us what we need, you know, to be successful, to keep going on because. I don't see a future of our government giving us or doing anything to help us. So we still have to continue this fight. Plus, we're pushing it to the to the White House. I was there when um, when Biden won. We marched. I marched with the Black Panthers to the White House saying two, four, six, eight. Tell the tell the world who we hate, the Republicans, the Democrats, the whole damn bunch. Another ongoing movement that has gained renewed interest since the summer protests is the Patrick Kimmon marches that happen twice a week. Letha Winston has been marching the streets of Portland, at times alone, in the search for justice for her son, Patrick Kimmons. For years, Letha has pleaded for local officials to reopen his case after he was shot and killed by Portland police in late 2018. The calls were met with little action. That was until the George Floyd uprisings. These protests have gave rise to an amended version of the slogan, Black Lives Matter, with many beginning to proclaim that all black lives matter. While this phrase was created in part to give more visibility to black LGBTQ people who are experiencing some of the worst harms in the community, it also grew to buck at the idea that those worth honoring or remembering need to somehow be perfect victims. Black and unarmed with no criminal background, when news of Kimmons' case broke, details were scant. He got into a confrontation with two men, shooting and wounding both of them. Police showed up shortly thereafter, and he was shot and killed. It was later revealed by the autopsy that of the 12 bullets police fired at 27-year-old Kimmons, nine entered his body. It also showed that some of those shots had gone through his back. After a judge ruled that there was no wrongdoing by the police, the Bureau released footage of the early morning standoff. Organizer Jedi Levy explains the scene here. Basically, like there was like a, a a minor like argument or scuffle or whatever, and Patrick started running, and um, he didn't know that he was running towards the police, but he was running towards the police, and then went to turn into like in between some cars, and the cops started shooting him, and all the shots went into his back. So, um, yeah, they shot him in the back and killed him, and. Uh, 
the cops were not charged. It was basically rule justifiable homicide. And um, it wasn't, though, because they shot him in his back. So during the trial, the rookie cop who fired the fatal shots described himself as doing what he was taught to neutralize the threat. It was enough to vindicate him in the courts, but not in the eyes of Letha. She's been leading regular marches throughout the city since 2018. Sometimes with a, a crowd, other times just alone with a megaphone demanding for the case to be reopened. Once the Portland protests began, her fight gained new light. Organizers like Jedi have helped grow the fleet of protesters marching alongside Kimmon's mother. He talks about his involvement in the marches here. She did it for well over a year with virtually no help um, except for one person named Jay and he still comes to this very day like he's the only person that actually stuck with her throughout this entire time but um, so she's basically just trying to spread awareness and like talk to Ted Wheeler. It worked an emotional face-to-face between her and the mayor was finally scheduled. Ted Wheeler was super sad and was like I can't believe I haven't done more about this I'm really really sorry he's told her that she's like the strongest speaker like one of the strongest speakers she's he's ever seen and he was brought to tears this nigga was literally crying in the mayor's office um so that was great and what she's trying to what basically we're, we're just continuing to put the pressure on uh the police officers when we go out and um Really, we just want this the next meeting to to come up because the next meeting they're going to sit down and actually review the tapes together. So um, that is what is being done right now, um, and just keeping our fingers crossed that it happens sooner sooner than later. Still, the case hasn't been reopened. Letha continues to march around the city, demanding justice for her son, affectionately known as Pat Pat. The marches have continued with increased numbers through all of fall and into winter. During the autumn, faced with increased attacks from far-right extremists who would attack Letha's marches with signs and flags declaring that they backed the blue, organizers and activists began using the slogan, Back the Black, for their weekly protests. The continued hate and aggression that these peaceful marches have seen reflected the growing vitriol that was coming from the far-right as we moved into the election. And finally, the January violence that rocked the nation. In Washington, D.C. on January 6th, thousands of Trump supporters rushed the Capitol building in a last-ditch attempt to stop the certification of the presidential election results. The violent attempt to take over forced Congress to evacuate and left five dead, including two police officers, and drew the ties between law enforcement, Republican congresspeople, and far-right militants to the forefront of national awareness. In December, a Stop the Steal rally in Salem, Oregon had similarly breached the state capitol, though the group hadn't reached the chambers of legislature. CCTV footage later showed that the breach in Salem began with a Republican legislator opening the doors to admit the mob. On the 6th of January, a small far-right group assembled again and clashed with left-wing demonstrators. The group again included both mainstream Republican politicians and extremist figures, including one of the white supremacists convicted in the 1988 murder of Ethiopian grad student Mulugeta Sarah in Portland. Compared to the nation's capital, the Salem rally was limited. No major breaches of the capital in Salem occurred. By 3 p.m., the crowd had dispersed. Despite the shakeup, Biden assumed office just over a week later. 
On his first day in office, Biden signed an executive order halting ICE deportations for 100 days as the administration attempted to overhaul many of Trump's deportation policies. That same day, protesters in Portland gathered at the local ICE headquarters. They didn't want a temporary end to deportations. They wanted a complete disbanding of the 9-11 era agency who split up scores of families, held small children in cages, and acted in strong concert with the FBI since its inception. This night ended with six arrests and without the staying of tear gas. Days later, another was a different story as feds and riot gear met protesters with cuffs, force, and clouds of gas. The headquarters had, however, become a fixture in the protests with federal agents regularly deploying CS gas against them. But situated next to the facility was a school, K-8 public charter, Cottonwood School of Civics and Science. The school regularly was engulfed in tear gas. Dr. Juniper Simonis immediately sprung into action collecting soil samples across the school campus, including its playground, to assess its impacts. While that research continues, Cottonwood didn't wait for the answer. They wanted an immediate end to the use of tear gas by federal agents. Now, the agency hasn't issued any formal response, but it's almost certain that activists will continue returning to the building and call for an end to ICE as weeks roll on. With four years of Biden and Harris at the helm, their election was a welcome reprieve from Trump's heavy-handed brand of racist politics, but not an end to the fight against systems of repression. The simultaneous re-election of Mayor Ted Wheeler was a mark of dread for many who had been on the ground. He eked out a win, earning more votes than on-ballot challenger Sarah Iannaron, but less than her in total write-ins, many which are presumed to have went to Don't Shoot Portland founder Teresa Rayford, who community members launched a write-in campaign for after the longtime BLM leader lost her bid for Portland's top seat in the primaries. The results revealed a divide even in Portland politics. Despite the split, it also marked the most racially, gender, and sexually diverse council in the city's history. The new council assumed office this January. Negotiations began between the city and police union that same month. And this time, for the first time ever, the public got a glimpse behind the curtain. After months of protests that put their barrel on headlines across the world, all eyes were on these powerful vanguards of the profession. In the negotiations, tensions remained high as union heads railed against new measures of oversight, discipline, and limits on overtime expenditures. While the Bureau had said they want racial and social justice changes in the police force, many of the proposed changes have been met with critique and resistance. Their current contract with the city expires June 30th this year. As negotiations continue, it remains to be seen what changes will come between the Bureau and the city. The past year has been marked by a number of police-involved violence, despite the growing calls for justice. In Vancouver, Washington, a bridge away from Portland, two young black men, Kevin Peterson Jr. and Genoa Davis, have been killed by officers within just a couple months of each other. In the college town of Eugene, Oregon, Mushin Sharif was shot after police responded to an alleged domestic violence report. Sharif did survive. Meanwhile, amidst the backdrop of the pandemic, the streets of Portland are seeing 30-year highs in gun violence. Economic downturn is leaving the city on edge. White supremacists of all stripes have been emboldened, while cries for justice for black lives have reached feverish new highs. The international cameras are gone now. Protests continue, but in markedly smaller numbers. That nine-minute fuse of George Floyd's murder had lit a fire under the country, What surfaced was a renewed urgency to transform a system that has devalued black lives, not as an exception, but a fundamental tool and tradition of the society. 
As the streets have quieted, the urgency for change still remains for those that have been a part of these uprisings. As the resistance begins to take a new face, the question remains, what's next? I don't think it's going to, I don't think people are just going to get tired and go away. This is, like, people have had enough of this police brutality and, and the racism that, you know, influences police brutality. I don't see it going away. I mean, I see it ebbing and flowing like, you, you know, just it's almost natural for any energy to do that. So we go, you know, we go up with big turnouts and go down with low turnouts or up with really good morale and then, you know, down in the dumps later. It's just so I think it's going to keep following that some kind of ebb and flow of change. But I don't think it's going to go away. I don't see how it could go away when the police are continuing to kill unarmed black people. Yeah. They're, continue, they're continuing to do it. I think it's really telling that, as far as I know, not one single Portland police officer has been um, disciplined for their actions. And they have done some extremely terrible things that should be disciplined. Things that go against their training, things that go against their own policies and procedures. And these things are caught on video, so there is no excuse at all for why they have not been disciplined. People just, like, become, I don't know, the, the changes become the normative, if that makes sense. Like, the way it gets pushed out into the big sea of water, big sea of sea, and then that's what it is. You know, I think... Like, I, I look at Ferguson, uh, so that movement, you know, kind of faded away or whatever. This but I election guess it just happened. I can't yeah, but yeah, in this past election, they just elected one of the activists from their Congress. So that's like, though the movement like faded away, that's like last change. And the people there have been, were radicalized to do these things. So it's like, though the movement that's tied to the summer of 2020 may fade away. It's like, uh, unless they're going to, you know, remove everybody and all of our experiences and all of our renewed perspectives on life, then you can't really, like, destroy movement at all. It's natural. I think the... It's interesting. There's, like, two different... The morale of the city as a whole is very, like, in limbo, I feel like, often times but because it's like ultimately people who are protesting are ultimately doing it for the right right reasons and we get like little glimmers of like hope but then like just today i learned of three black people that were killed in the last week throughout the united states by police unarmed so and then you hear shit like that and then it it just makes you wonder like why are we even continuing to do this like why even keep fighting this just keeps happening but I think that um, right now we live in this, I feel like right now we live in this time of questions where we have a lot of questions without answers, but there are years that ask questions and there are years that answer them. I don't think we're in in a year right now where we're going to get a lot of answers and that's okay. I feel like we need to be okay with like sitting in the questions and going through like the mud and going through the puddle, so to speak, in order to get to where we want to go. It's going to take time because the system is taking years to, um, to build into what it is right now. And so it's just going to take time. So I think the morale of the city limbos because you have a bunch of, you know, the, 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 
white neoliberals who just want to go back to normal, but normal was killing us. So we're not going to do that. And then you have our side, which is like, we're feeling, we're getting pulled in all kinds of directions. We're feeling inspiration and then we're feeling discouragement because we keep seeing the same shit happen. But ultimately, um, mutual aid really is the way of the future. And I think that these mutual aid groups and networks that we're forming right now are really the genesis of what it's going to look like for humanity to live in a world without dependence on the state and without needing or feeling like we, the police are going to keep us safe when they've proven so many times that we don't. Um, so I personally am excited about the future because I'm witnessing like the, uh, yeah, really just the genesis of what, of the world that I would like to live in. Um, but obviously, you know, it's the whole two steps forward, one step back thing that we, that we have to deal with as well. So I'm looking forward to how things are going. I'm just hoping that more people can really open their eyes to, um, how they're, how being complicit to the system is literally murdering people that look like me and Donovan and that we need to stop it. There's too many people who are still sleeping. Um, that's a big reason why I think we were doing that thing at RCJ was to wake up this side of this, the river, like march through the neighborhoods, wake people up, let them know that we're here. There's a ton of us and that they need to be on our side because ultimately when, when we are free, when black people are free, everybody's going to be free because black liberation is human liberation at the end of the day. So if we can really focus on uplifting our most marginalized and most oppressed communities, then we're uplifting everybody at the same time. And the quicker that more people really understand that and are inspired enough to actually take action and be a part of the movement, um, the better. Just, um, yeah, um, I'm looking forward to things though, personally. We crooked. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. 
Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The 2020 uprisings were not Portland's first by any means. The city earned the name Little Beirut after protests against the Portland Republican National Convention in 1989. But when the world was gripped with a pandemic that had brought most facets of normal life to a screeching halt, a spotlight was flung on the gaps between what America says it is and the realities its black citizens have experienced for decades. And in the midst of all this, Portland became Little Beirut again, or as President Trump called it, a beehive of terrorists. To many of those on the ground, the City of Roses seemed to be seeing what might be the beginnings of a beautiful new world, straining to be born. Tragedy warred with hope, and through it all, blood, sweat, and tear gas. A sometimes messy but determined group of activists stood toe-to-toe against some of the deepest cylinders of oppression in the country to make sure the normal that we have all known is replaced. Some lobbied, some voted, some shouted down the mayor. Some started nonprofits, some started wearing block. No matter what people chose, thousands decided to take action. No definitive answers emerged out of the protests, but what did emerge was a reinvigorated sense of urgency for change. The question we're now all left with is this Will we right the historic wrongs of this nation in time to fix things before the clock runs out? Only time will tell. Uh, word to grandpops who couldn't fathom the Obamases. I don't hate America, just a man she keeps her promises. Twenty teens looking like the 60s, it's crazy. A nationwide deja vu, what my people supposed to do? Go to schools named after the clan founder. Word around town is y'all don't see why we frowning. Native American students forced to learn about when opera Sarah. How is that fair, bruh? Some heroes unsung and some monsters get monuments built for them. But ain't be all a little bit of monster. We crooked. I am... The Ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? 
This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tail. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how three 20-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.